0: so grateful for our worship team. They do such a great job. Amen. I, uh, I've said to my kids many times, you get more of whatever you praise. And so I'm praising you in X or Y behavior. Church, I praise you that you delight in lifting your voices in song. Not just by a team that's skilled and uh, welcoming, but also by a congregation that delights to give voice to what is true in their hearts. We are engaged in a sermon series going verse by verse through the book of Galatians. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn there. We're going to continue our journey, picking up in verse 15 and moving forward. This is God's word, and we should hear it and receive it as such. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter and remained with him 15 days." The word of the Lord, please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come this morning desperate to hear from you, desperate to set aside the circumstances of life and focus our attention on greater and longer lasting heavenly joys. So, Father, send us your Spirit to convict, to encourage, to transform and restore, to prepare, and to lead us to forsake what you are calling us to forsake and to embrace all that you have for us in Christ, the full blessings. Of a totally obedient life stored for us and poured out. So, God, come, come and meet with us that we might glory in you afresh this morning. It's in Jesus' name we make our requests, and all God's people agree. We, of course, are still early on in this letter that Paul is writing to the churches of Galatia. He's writing to churches that he's known for a while, ones that he planted and pastored. He's writing to people whom he knows and whom he knows know him. And yet, there is a group of false teachers who are seeking to draw the great freedom and liberality of life in Christ back to the slavery of a man's religion, a works-based religion. One where we're uncertain about God's countenance towards us. One where that countenance rises and falls by every thought or action Paul is right to say earlier in this chapter that that is a non-gospel. There's no good news in a works-based, self-righteousness-based earthly religion. There's no benefit. It's slavery. It's the kind of slavery that can come with a smile It's the kind of slavery that can come with the expectation of envelopes and baskets. It's the kind of slavery that can come in the cruelties of performance. How your kids act defines who you are, not only in society, but before God. How you respond inwardly and outwardly. Is the thing that determines whether God hears your prayers or rejects them. Anybody excited about that as a religion? Anybody signing up for that? In fact, if we study the life of Paul as we saw his conversion last week, we begin to realize that God has been using and training the Apostle Paul even before his conversion for the great ministry that he was going to be called to. See, nobody knows the highs and lows of performance more than Paul. Nobody knows the entangling slavery of a life where God's favor is earned and lost. And earned and lost again. In fact, Paul's been tutored in the way of works righteousness his whole life. So, on the road to Damascus, all things changed. On the road to Damascus, he saw the freedom of Christ given to a people, he saw the favor of God offered up front regardless of performance, and then enabling all that he would require or ask, preparing for him. A smooth, easy, clean life? Is that what Paul experiences as the promise? No. Through many hardships, through many sufferings, the Apostle Paul would follow and faithfully obey the risen Christ. So when we come to the letter that Paul has to write to this church, this group of churches, he is watching and hearing that they are returning, or for many of them, turning for the first time to the very slavery he's been indoctrinated with his whole life and the one from which he'd been taken from the pit that he'd been delivered out of. Why on earth would Gentiles want Judaism without grace? So he writes, and we saw he's coming in hard and hot. He rolled in hot because the stakes couldn't be higher. The very gospel is in danger of being lost. And he's not mad that some of what he did might get destroyed. Every builder knows one day that building will come down and another take its place. Paul's not thinking about legacy. He's thinking about eternal life. Stakes can't be higher. So the Apostle Paul is writing to help establish a few things here at the onset of his letter. He's acknowledged that he's been set apart for this holy work of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And last week we saw the events that Paul is describing and pointing to Here in verse 15 and 16, Paul writes, but when he, speaking of God, who had set him apart from the womb before he was born, who called Paul by his grace, God had an eternal plan for Paul. And God was pleased to reveal the Son of God in the heart, mind, of of Paul. I can imagine Paul feeling perplexed as anyone with great guilt and shame can attest. This is beyond what I deserve. Isn't that a Christian cry? This favor of God, this, this gracious mercy in given to me and unfolding around me and by his grace through me. It is overwhelming to remember how unworthy we are of any of these things. No one is more surprised by Paul's calling and conversion than he is. And he knows that it comes in purpose. We saw Ananias hear this. We know that Paul knows this, but here he is, years later, continuing to profess the truth of the purpose for his rebirth. It's not just for Paul. All that you've been given in Christ, it's not just for you. Don't get me wrong, it's for you. But it's not only for you. It's also an invitation not just to a heavenly eternity, but also to the work, the hard work, the suffering work of identifying your righteousness as having a different source than your own life, brilliance. Paul says as clearly as he can, that these things were unfolding in him because God was going to use him to preach Christ among the Gentiles. This is what the great prophets of old say that he who is not my people will be called my people. God has always been offering the gospel. To the nations, the people groups of the world, always in his view. And so here, he dramatically and incredibly and quite surprisingly has transformed Paul's life in a sudden conversion that is always and exclusively an act of God, and in that event... In that conversion, at the very alpha point of his faith in Christ, it was the event that gave Paul the gospel that he was to preach. Outsider, an enemy, adopted and transformed. So the question that I think many of us have is why didn't Paul, upon conversion, run to Jerusalem? If you're finally adopted into a family, why didn't you, at the time and hour of your transformation, run to community, run to fellowship, run to the apostles? Why didn't Paul quickly go and meet the other apostles in Jerusalem? And we've seen from the very beginning of this letter that whether he intended to or not, Paul was establishing his apostolic independence. He was saying, I don't need to run to Jerusalem to encounter God. He met me on the road to Damascus. Is there anywhere I could go that's beyond his grip? Or sight? The answer, of course, is no. Paul did not learn through instruction the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul received the gospel of grace through revelation, God making himself known to Paul. Paul would later say, I have seen, have I not? The risen Christ, Paul would count himself among the 500 or so who have laid eyes, earthly eyes and spiritual eyes on the risen Christ. And so he says as a reminder to the Galatians who, let's be honest, know this story probably better than we do. He says, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. He did not consult with a person, an earthly creature. Literally, this word means flesh and blood. Paul didn't run to flesh and blood to learn about Christianity, to become a follower of the way. To join those, he was literally on his way to destroy, to imprison, to kill. Paul didn't receive the gospel through instruction. He has no interest in the religions of man. He has no curiosity about what tribes in other places believe. Even the tribe of disciples turned apostles, or at least not yet. I would want to go quickly because I want to believe that I'm not crazy. Let me see if I can illustrate this in a much lesser way. Just about every time I go to a doctor, I go because something's wrong with me, and there's enough wrong that it keeps my calendar pretty full. But I will have a conversation with Liz almost always the night before, and we will pray together that I would be found not crazy. I don't know if you've experienced this, but you feel like there's this thing that's going on and you're sort of like anticipatorily depressed. This scan won't find it. The doctor won't understand it. There's no medicine that can help it. I'm not telling you big stuff. I'm saying this regularly happens inside of me. I get a need for a root canal. And I'm like, Tim, your inside did it, uh, was, was it bad? And he's like, yes, it was bad. I'm literally cleaning the blood from it. And I'm like, okay, good. I'm not crazy. I don't know if you've experienced that but it would want me were I, not just in earthly physical need, but spiritually transformed need, I would want to run to find the people who will tell me I'm not crazy. Paul must have more self-confidence than Kevin does. Or more faith, perhaps. Certainly got better reason to have faith in the words of God and the actions of God than in the knowledge of a doctor or medical staff. But do you understand my point? Paul doesn't need human confirmation. This is what he says in 17, first part. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were Apostles before me. I would want Christians. And he has apostles. Guys who have been doing this from the jump. And been doing it together for years. With Christ himself as their instructor. In these verses... Paul is continuing to answer the allegation being made against him. It's an allegation that's being made by the false teachers. See, the playbook here is pretty simple. Those who came after Paul, who wanted to stop what God was creating through Paul, destroying what God had made, the playbook is simple, in order for them to bolster their own authority as false teachers, they begin to undermine Paul's authority by removing Paul's apostolic credentials. If, he can get, if they can get Paul's license, if you will, if he, they can undermine the trust that these churches have had for years and years, then their influence will go because Paul's gospel is a threat, a protection against the very religion of man that they want to ensnare the people of these churches with. Take away Paul's credentials, and you're left only with arguments. One man's idea against another man's idea. But Paul doesn't want the instruction of man. Paul's not interested in the religion of men. Paul's not looking to win arguments. He can do that on his own, perhaps. He's not after instruction. He is after revelation. He wants God to show him what is true. Isn't that the yearning that brings you to this church? That you want to know what is true? That Kevin's opinion doesn't matter? Hallelujah. Only God's matters when it comes to the arena of truth. So Paul continues here in verse 17, not only did he not go up to Jerusalem, to those who were apostles before him, but instead he went away into Arabia, and then returned again after a short time to Damascus. What's happening here? Well, Paul here is referring to the kingdom of Nabatea, that was known in their day as Arabia. Arabia. The Nabataean kingdom included the city of Damascus. And remember, Paul was on his way to Damascus when the Lord radically converted him. So Paul doesn't run to Jerusalem, but he also doesn't run away. He stays essentially where he was. So not only didn't he go to Jerusalem, he began to live out what God had called him to. And then we're told at the beginning of verse 18 that it was after three years that he went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, to see Peter and some in Jerusalem. He didn't really see many apostles, he'll go on to say. But what's happening here? What's God doing in this season where for the better part of three years, Paul spends this time in this kingdom near Israel, but clearly outside Israel? I believe that in addition to establishing Paul's apostolic independence, he's equally establishing his ministerial dependence. If he is to minister and carry out this gospel proclamation to the nations, then he will need the true source of empowering strength and the true wisdom that is absolute in the word of God. See, Paul waited to go up to Jerusalem because God was confirming Paul's experience of divine revelation on the Damascus Road as trustworthy and authentic. But how was God to do that? How was God to say to Paul, yes, it is me whom you persecuted, yes, It is me, the Messiah, the one who was long promised, who has come. There are times where I can get my feathers ruffled, proverbially, of course. When someone says that Judaism and Christianity are entirely different religions, that the world has three dominant religions, Judaism, properly understood, is Christianity. It is. Christianity doesn't replace Judaism. It's the promised fulfillment of all. From the same God who spoke to Moses and David and the prophets, it's the same God who speaks and meets with Paul. On the Damascus Road, Paul needs to ground his ministry in the same thing that people who were faithful to God have grounded their ministry in their whole lives. For thousands of years, God has been speaking to the man he created. If Paul is to be successful by any heavenly standard, he will not do so because of his intelligence or his strength, his brilliance. No, no. Paul doesn't need to run to Peter. He doesn't need to run to Jerusalem to gather Peter's ideas or Peter's experiences because they don't matter if The gospel is not first to be found in the scripture. Did you hear that? Peter's years of walking and talking with Jesus of Nazareth, they won't help Paul if the gospel is not first to be found on every page. Every voice matched between the one that Paul hears on that Damascus road and the one that God has used for century after century to lead and guide and guard his people. It sounds a little rough for us. We're so used to kind of laughing at Peter's, uh, what do we call it, precociousness? Boldness, perhaps? But we're also keenly aware that Jesus promised to build his church through the testimony of these few men. Wouldn't their ideas matter? Wouldn't their insights and understandings and experiences be the source of material? Source of comfort? Not if what they say and what they experienced can't also be confirmed and united in the congruent power of God through Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. So it sounds like I'm dumping on Peter. I'm not. And Paul's not. They will soon become great friends, great partners in ministry. They'll have their squabbles and difficulties like everyone who is in these battles will But Peter agrees with Paul and this sentiment that he doesn't have to run to Jerusalem to learn from Peter. Peter himself is in awe that God has made himself known to Peter and through Peter. Many, many years after the book of Galatians is written, the apostle Peter will say in his own letter to the scattered brethren what we find here in 2 Peter 1, 16. And it continues all the way through 21. I'm not gonna give you the whole thing. I don't have time. But hear this and study it on your own this week. Peter, reflecting on the legacy of the gospel in his lifetime, says this. He says of he and the other apostles, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you, the reader, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He would go on to say in verse 20, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying the scripture is trustworthy. The scripture is more trustworthy than the greatest experience Paul and Peter had ever had with Jesus. On the very Mount of Transfiguration, little Peter met. Standing on the same ground in the promised land that he was, Elijah and Moses. Did you know that? We've often said Moses never got to set foot in the promised land. It's not true. He just had to die first and wait a while. I'm dead serious. In Luke's accounting of this moment, he uses the word standing, not floating or hovering. They're not ghosts. Peter experienced the radical transformation of Jesus where the veil between the seen world that we all know and live in and the unseen world that we rarely know, if at all, but still live in. And that veil thinned to the degree that Jesus was sparkling in heavenly glory. And Peter, as usual, in these crazy moments with Jesus, Peter drops to the ground, which is a good example for us of what we do when God does amazing things. We drop. Peter might be trying to escape this cloud of glory he finds himself in, but either way, he's down But he loves it. He loves it so much. He's like, hey, can I make some tents for us? And we can do this for a while? We can camp with Elijah and Moses? Is this a supernatural moment? Yeah. But it's also the moment that precedes Jesus turning his face towards Jerusalem and marching towards the cross of Calvary in agreement with the long-promised prophecies that Elijah represents in bodily form and the law of God, which Moses represents in bodily form. The law and the gospel declare the importance of the, the eternal significance of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so here's Peter saying in this context that as awesome as that moment was, it is a lesser thing than what we all have in Scripture. Lift your esteem of what God has given us in Scripture. We almost have too much access to it. It's easily at our fingertips, but how many times do we crack that spine that we would meet with God on every page? See, one of the things that's happening here is that Paul is learning by God's invitation to find the confirmation of his experiences and submit them under the Bible that he's known so well. I have a mildly morbid question for you. Would you regret not having read Scripture more if your eyes were suddenly taken from you? I'm at an age now where eyesight becomes a regular part of our conversations Reading glasses and bifocals and transitional lenses and contacts one eye one way and the other eye the other way and I'm also having those checkups where do you have glaucoma let's do the the crazy test and the vision analysis i'm getting the phone calls that after that there's a chance there's a percentage and these These are difficult conversations at times because we're really fearful and it would have enormous consequence. But upon reflection, I would wish that I had read more, that I had memorized more, that I'd paid more attention to the use of my eyes, that I would have guarded the images that are going through my eyes to my mind, and that I would have replaced what should have been guarded. I don't have to live with a rearview mirror. I don't have to live with theoretical regret. But it does give us a twinge of conviction to realize that our eyes are one incident away from uselessness. Peter's saying scripture is better than the Mount of Transfiguration. <laughs> if you want to hear more about this moment, I have preached this whole scene much more thoroughly. At an earlier time, I will link it for us on Rome. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that Peter is not going to be upset that Paul went to scripture instead of him. And Paul's Bible is our Bible. Now, through the awesome power of God, Paul's letters, some of which we have, are also scripture. Not only was Paul in love with the Old Testament, his Bible, but God used him and all his knowledge and all that wisdom and revealed to him and protected his mind so that his letters would be written in the same apostolic authority that the prophets were, that Moses was equally to be trusted as the tomes of old. Can you imagine Paul figuring that out at some point? I think you see it reflected in 2 Timothy 4. Don't have time for it today. But I think that's part of why Paul is not running to Jerusalem, that he's not running to Peter. It's because he is not excited or interested in his apostolic independence only. He also wants this ministerial dependence. He wants to trust God and teach God's word. And the prophets declare loudly that where the word of God is adored and obeyed, life flourishes. And when the word of God is despised and neglected, whole societies begin to crumble under the judgment of God. But there's a third reason, I think, That Paul is not in Jerusalem at the beginning. It's clear to the history of the church that that Paul is doing more than just studying. Is Paul studying? Is Paul praying? Yeah, but he's also preaching. Very dangerous thing to do without seminary. No laughs. Learn more about the history of our particular church. <laughs> we have stories. But the great uh, Machen, the great Presbyterian of the last century, he said this, Real preaching is born in long and laborious study of the word of God and in the agony of the preacher's soul. Yeah, try and live up to that week after week. Just Sorry. Do you hear his heart, though? Real preaching. This real missional proclamation. It's born in long and laborious study of the word of God and in the agony of the preacher's soul. Paul is not just establishing his apostolic credentials. He's not just studying and confirming his own experience, submitting it to the very word of God. He is also preaching the gospel that he knows and has received. Listen to the great Martin Luther. Luther says it this way. He says it's silly to ask what Paul did in Arabia. What else would he have done but preach Christ? Luther, always so quick, always cutting through. Yeah, God is maintaining Paul's apostolic credentials, his independence. And Paul's studying the Word of God and praying through the Word of God. And he's also preaching. This is confirmed for us in the account we studied last week. In Acts 9, verses 19 and 20, we read from Luke's pen who journeyed with Paul for a decade or more. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. Verse 20. And immediately, when? When? Immediately. Immediately. He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, here's Paul's gospel. He's the son of God. He's the long-promised Messiah. It reminds me of the, the artist formerly known as blind in John 9. Where everybody's like, hey, give me deep theology. Answer this theological complexity. What happened? And then they drag in his parents and they're putting him on trial and everything's trying to come out. And at one point, he shouts some of the most freeing words this heart has ever heard. All I know. You're afraid somebody might ask you a question you don't have an answer to? Praise God. Because then you get to learn and they get to learn as you go study and research together. I call it the, the rising ladder of knowledge. See, you might have a question you don't know an answer to. And so you will text or email or call me and we'll meet or talk or whatever and you'll have a question and if I know the answer, I'll, I'll give it to you and I'll share with you and we'll spend way longer than you probably want in any given moment studying and thinking this through. But there are times when you get a question given to you that you pass on to me, and I go, there's probably a really great answer to that. Guess I'm going to work now. And I will try, and I'll read, or I'll Google. I love Google. Don't be afraid to Google biblical things. Just know that because the internet says it's true doesn't make it true you imagine if we had to police the internet in such a way that only truth could stay? I don't have that much free time. But there's always a guy in my pocket who I can call. In the same way that you could ask your kingdom group leader, or they could ask your elder, or your elder could ask me, I too could call a professor or a pastor, more seasoned, more knowledgeable, more engaged in this area. And we climb the ladder together. Do you know of anything that builds more trust between two people than taking their genuine questions seriously and giving good answers, not bumper sticker answers, not sound bites, but solid truth? Given in hope and comfort? See, Paul is confirming the gospel, but he's also learning by seeing this truth of Jesus come to life on every page. Please understand that virtually everything that's coming in the rest of this letter is anchored deeply in the Old Testament. Everything that's coming. When we get to chapter 3, it's literally clause after clause after clause after clause, none of which originates in Paul. All of it, piece by piece by piece by piece, meticulously put together out of the teaching of the Old Testament. Paul's not inventing anything. He's explaining everything as it comes from Scripture. Scripture. So what's the significance of this for us? One, I want you to trust what is coming. In the way that the churches of Galatia will receive the truth from Paul's pen, we too are invited into that reception, that trust that what is coming are the eternal truths of the real world you and I live in. The real world has one king above all other kings, one lord above all other lords, and we know his name, and anywhere, at any time, for any reason, whether it's the shower in prison, you can cry out to God and he will hear you. Whether it's the depths of fear in a hospital somewhere, you can cry out and he will hear you and bring comfort to you. Standing at graveside, throwing dirt on a body you have loved for so long. In the grief of mourning, he meets you there and you speak and he hears and you don't even have to use lips. When you're holding your firstborn for the very first time, wherever you find yourself, your heart cries out and he hears you. These are not just abstract theological thoughts. This is the real world. These things are facts. Facts on facts on facts in a world where we're not sure where truth is to be trusted, when our confidence is to be given. This is truth. This is the eternal revelation of the creator of all things. Your eyes have never beheld, your ears have never heard, your hearts have never mourned or rejoiced because of things that he did not first create. And one day soon, renew renew and restore in absolute and eternal perfection. One day soon you will wake up and sin will be all untrue. One day you will wake up and eternal eyes in a glorified body Will rise to an eternity without sorrow, without cancer, without loss, without suffering in any more form. You'll want to sing that day, I suppose. Good, because there's a feast and a worship that will happen forever. Forever. Brothers and sisters, children of all ages, the gospel is not good advice from man. The gospel is good news from God. The gospel, here's your application, the gospel is to be studied and prayed through and shared. The gospel is to be studied and prayed through and preached in every corner, in every nook and cranny of this whole globe that he's given us, that men and women and children from every tribe and every nation will be gathered together in the song of praise, in a choir far beyond a few churches getting together. But my hope is that tonight is a tiny taste for you of the glorious heaven that awaits. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a testimony more reliable than we have imagined, more trustworthy than we can know. Father, we ask that you would give us eyes that we might see your hands at work where hitherto we will know that you are gloriously trustworthy and that we can trust what you say, that we can trust that you do good, that you are the source of all power, all goodness, all wisdom. And may we yield our hearts, minds, and lives before your feet. May we study your word May we pray through the agonies and ecstasies of the life that you have given. And may we preach and share the gospel regardless of what we think they will respond with. May we be found faithful as we follow you, our eternally faithful Father. In all that you have and all that you've called us to, may you be glorified and your people blessed. We ask it in the name of Jesus, and all God's people agree.